Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Alan Salkin from New Books and Food. Today I'm interviewing Witold Soblowski. He's the author of How to Feed a Dictator, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Enver Hoxha, Fidel Castro, and Pol Pot Through the Eyes of Their Cooks. Um, and we're doing this interview by Skype. And uh, hi, Witold. And where are you? Hi, Alan. Uh, I'm, thank you for having me. And I'm in Warsaw, which is the capital of Poland. Yes, Warsaw. How's the food scene in Warsaw? Right now, it's bad. <laughs> We're in the middle. Yeah, of, right it, now, it, it doesn't it, exist. Yeah. All the restaurants are closed. It's probably uh, all over the world. It's, it's more or less the same. But uh, normally, it's quite a vi- vibrant and quite exciting place to eat. And uh, especially we we have a very, very living scene of the uh, vegetarian and vegan food, which is a great thing because our traditional diet is quite heavy and uh, contains, for example, kielbasa, because which is a which is a very similar to the German schnitzel, which is a very heavy uh, piece of pork. So it's now now it's vibrant and the interesting thing also is that we are uh, we are on the way to, you know to rediscover our traditional Polish kitchen after we we changed the system you know from communism to democracy we had many years that we were we were very much into other kitchens you know the kitchens that you couldn't have tried right. when the communists were in power so we we went very much into Italian kitchen Spanish uh, then Asian, like Japanese, sushi and Thai, uh, Thai kitchen. And now we are kind of rediscovering our own uh, kitchen, which is fascinating. So, I, I, God, I, we could probably do an hour on the food there. And we should, I should tell people who might be listening to this later that right now it's the end of April 2020. Most of the world's in quarantine uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. So that's why the scene everywhere isn't happening. But um, so the book is absolutely fascinating and you're fascinating. And so I tell me about you. I mean, the book was originally written in Polish, right? Right. And it was recently, has it come out in Poland already or is it um, simultaneously being released everywhere? No, no. It it came out in Poland in September and last month it was published in uh, in Holland. And it's been, it's been sold to some other countries. Like last month I, I sold it to Asia, to Taiwan. But yeah. So it's been sold to 10 countries so far, but I hope it's not the last word. Well, you nailed it. You know, you it's such a great idea. When it, an idea is this good, it'll just keep going and selling. And also because it's, you know, it's these are names, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, that are just Fidel Castro, that are just, 
you know, in the, in the annals of um, infamy. Um, and so, and this approach, how, how did you, I mean, I, you know, I've read some of the book and, uh, you know, in the introduction and uh, there's so many questions. And I know you said that you could write an entire book about how you even got these interviews with the <laughs> chefs, but tell me about how this idea came to you. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for all, all the compliments. I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, well, the idea came from... Well, I'm a fellow journalist who likes <laughs> selling books and admires a great idea. But, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I before I became a journalist, I almost uh, became a chef. I had an episode when I graduated from university that I went, Poland was quite a poor country those years. And I went to work to Denmark, to Copenhagen, and I began uh, washing the dishes in, in a fancy restaurant in the center of, of, the, of the city. But very quickly, I became a cook helper and then I became a, a cook by myself in it. That all took me just a couple of months. But um, well, let me interrupt you there because you you said that the sh the people who were working in that first restaurant, um, I think that a lot of them were Albanians or refugees from around the world, and they told you that the only way to endure being in the kitchen for long hours was to smoke pot first, smoke marijuana first. <laughs> oh yeah, you you picked the best part of that story. Well, uh, they they were they were actually they were Kurds from uh, right, Iraq. Okay. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it it was a very hard job to be honest and but they they had very very good fellows working with me and they told me at the very beginning, hey, hey man, you're not going to do the dishes for your whole life. It was a Mexican restaurant and they told me, we're going to teach you how to do the Mexican stuff, uh, how to how to do the tacos, how to do uh, the, the, the other dishes and you, you'll be a chef. There'll be, there'll be another person doing, the, you know, washing the dishes. You'll be a chef like we are. And that's what they did, actually, you know. So they they were smoking a, a, a lot of marijuana, that's true. But at the same time, they were very devoted chefs. The food was delicious in, in the place. And they really did what they promised. So that's why I had this really short but beautiful career, because they really focused on teaching me how to cook. Well, I have to and just was, ask you, Did have you found that the habit of smoking pot has served you as a journalist or a writer in the future? You know, I, I don't smoke smoke that much. So to be, you know, to be legal, I should say that I smoke only in the countries where, where it's course, legal. No, absolutely. But um, so when I'm, when I'm working, when I, when I do anything like, like smoking or alcohol, I do that when I'm not working, you know, when I work, I prefer, and that's what I'm saying seriously. Yeah. When I'm at work, I'm trying to have my brain clear for me. Any kind of booze, uh, is, is when, when, you know, to entertain myself and it's when I can entertain myself when I'm working, I'm, I'm working. I, I keep jumping in and interrupting you, but, um, <laughs> but let's, let's, since you started off with your biography a little bit, let's let's keep going on that, um, so people know who you know who you are and 
how your career has gone. And I'm also curious about how journalism is doing in Poland. But tell me about yourself and keep going. How'd you get into this business of writing? Well, I went to Poland, you know, I was, I was a chef in Copenhagen and I, I kind of enjoyed that, but, uh, I had some things, uh, to, to do in Poland and in Poland, that was how many years ago could that be something like 16 years ago? I was, you know, 20 something at that moment. That was exactly, yeah, I remember that's exactly 15 years ago. So I had to go back to Poland and that time we had the election. And because I studied political science, I thought I would go back to Copenhagen in something like a week or 10 days. But I met accidentally, I met on a street a friend of mine who was working in the biggest Polish newspaper. And he said, you know, this is the election time. We need the people to work. Maybe wow. you would like to make an internship in this newspaper because, you know, you graduated as a political science in, in, the, in the department of political science. And I said, like, yeah, it's, it's thank you. It's very kind. But, you know, I have a job in Copenhagen. And he was like, really, you want to be a chef? You want to be a cook? So why did you go to the university? Why did you waste, you know, five years of your life for, for the studies that you're not going to use? And, and yeah, and I thought that probably he's right. And, you know, the serious, the, the thing that a serious person would do would be going to that newspaper, yeah, and working there for the time of the election and then, uh, and then probably doing some other journalist stuff. And that's more or less, you know, trying, when I was trying to be serious, I, I did exactly what he, what he advised me to do. So then I would worked in the biggest newspaper that Poland had at that time for another 12 years. So I never mm. went back to Copenhagen. I never went back to cooking, actually. That beautiful career was, you know, was crushed right, oh, yeah. right, after, right after it began. I actually have a, I worked in kitchens as well and, uh, Quickly, real, yeah. It's 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 brutal. Did you uh, smoke pot there? Did you smoke? Did you smoke when when you were working in the kitchens? Um, I've been known to, yeah, imbibe a little bit, and also to, I do find that sometimes smoking uh, or drinking a little alcohol can actually help free me up as a writer, but not all the time and not every day. But anyway. Yeah. That's my dog making noise in the background. So, <laughs> all right. So you so you had a, a twelve year career, and then you you uh, came upon a, a book idea before this one, which was Dancing Bears: True Stories of People Nostalgic for Life Under Tyranny. Oh, that's the English title. Yeah, but that was my that was my third book. The first one because before I went to Copenhagen. I also lived in Turkey for for one and a half year. So my first book was actually about Turkey. It's a collection of reportage that I wore, I wrote from from my life in Turkey. And that was my first. It's called it's also available in English, but it was published a, a couple of years ago, so it's not that easy to find it. It's called The Assassin from the Apricot City. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then 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 were the dancing birds, which is a book about the about the nost- Generally, it's a book about the transformation from communism uh, to democracy and the freedom and the freedom question. Like, is this really possible to transform? And what's happening? Like, can you can you learn freedom? Can you learn to live in a free society? If you grew up in communism, and what's the answer? No, really. <laughs> well, it, the answer is much more complicated. But uh, so uh, uh, the answer would be it's it's possible, but it's it's complicated. It's hard. yes. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about that for an hour too. I mean, the whole original mission of at least Leninist style communism was when they started, they had to change the minds of the people who had grown up in a different system. And they used a lot of violence and collectivization, of course. And maybe it wouldn't surprise me that after all those years, the people would come out expecting a certain um, parental sort of role for the state that once it's gone, it feels very odd. That's my summary of your book that I've never yeah. read. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. But generally, I compare because the book is is built on a metaphor of the dancing birds. Because in Europe, we used to have the Roma people who had the the birds in captivity and they were earning money you know going from town to town and known as also bird. known as gypsies yeah 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 we, we with a bird that was trained to dance and that's how they made their ends meet and uh, at some point when when the last uh, uh, former communist countries were joining the EU European Union I mean that the practice was abolished and all the birds were taken from the gypsy people and they were take they 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 were taken from them and moved to a special park where they were set free so a, a bird that was used to you know they, they were always mm. <clears throat> let on a string suddenly they were set free of course it was a there there was a um, electric fence but still they could do whatever they wanted. They could play, they could hibernate, they could copulate. So I called the place a freedom laboratory. Mm-hmm. And I compare this place, this park for the ex-dancing birds, to the freedom laboratory that we are having in Central and Eastern Europe, shortly speaking, in the former communist countries. What did your parents do for a living? <clears throat> Sorry, they are retired both. Yeah, but what did what was your father's work? My father was an ambulance driver, and my mother was a teacher in a primary school and a director of that school. But that was a very very little school in a village. Um. So, uh, so let, let's. Uh, I could keep going about everything you're talking, but to, to go back to the book, uh, so that we're. Talking about the book, How to Feed a Dictator. Um, you know, I wrote a, my most recent book is a co-authored oral history of Donald Trump, 
He's the oh, wow. current president <laughs> of the United States. And uh, there's a lot of funny things about how he eats as well. Um, and also that he denies that he ever had a drink of alcohol, which turns oh, out really? not to be true because we I found the um a woman who a bartender who served him alcohol in the uh you know late nineties when he was partying and chasing models. So I'm in the little bit of the business of interviewing those who have served people in power as well. There's so I'm many stories, just, great just stories go, in here. I'm but your, I'm just Googling your book. Oh, okay. Well, please, uh, I'll send you a copy. Um, Perfect. But, uh, and everyone listening should buy one. It's called, uh, from uh, not from scratch, it's called The Method to the Madness. And um, to turn to your book first, so... The, the way it's organized is you have an introduction about yourself, much as we've talked about, and then you kind of divide it between some narrative of, you know, how you, you know, met these chefs, your quest to find them. And then it shifts almost into, you know, as told to or oral history in which it's just in the voice of each of these chefs telling their stories. How, how did so? I'm interested in that format, but I'm also interested. You know, the the first chef that we encounter is, I believe, the one who served uh, Pol Pot. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, she's opening the book, but she's she's more like a spine. So she's like refrain of the book. the the first uh, The first serious, the first story you have in the book, I think. Wait, I, I have so Dom, to check. Well, you go from you go from this little story, I think, of Pol Pot, and then into Saddam Hussein. We have a long. That's yeah. the first long fifty-page yeah. chapter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating because the, I mean, why don't you tell before I? Well, no, let me tell the story that he tells. What I love most about it is that Saddam Hussein was like every almost every man on earth. Whether or not he can actually cook, every man thinks he can barbecue. <laughs> so he wasn't like an every man because the the story that Abu Ali shares with us is uh, is proving that uh, Saddam was probably one of a very few men in Iraq who couldn't do the barbecue. Like especially in Iraq, it's a part of the culture to barbecue meat, and actually it's quite the same in the American in, in the United States that a man should know how to barbecue, and uh, and there is this amazing story when uh, Saddam is trying to make people because Saddam. When he had a good day, he wanted other people to have a good day either. And there is a story that whenever he was trying to cook for someone, that was a disaster. And there is one story where when he's doing a barbecue for his uh, his, uh, his personal, people who worked for him. His staff. But, yeah, but there is another story when he's cooking for the soldiers that are fighting with Iran in the name of, in the behalf of, of Saddam Hussein. And that's even worse because he couldn't even make, a, you know, simple rice with chicken. And even, you know, the, the, the rice was half boiled. Does it make sense? Half boiled? Yeah. 
half prepared, yeah, and the chicken was ready. So his only thing to do was, you know, to finish the rice, put the chicken on it and serve it to the soldiers. And, you know, and he could do that in three minutes, but he always oversalted and burned the dish. <laughs> so, so the, the chef says it was a disaster that whenever Saddam wanted to cook and it was very often because you know saddam hussein was really good in this whole propaganda games he liked that and he he knew how to make it so he knew that it looks good in television and in newspapers you know the father of the nation serving a meal to his soldiers he cooked the meal himself and now he's serving but nobody knows that actually the meal always tasted like a shit and and whenever abu ali the chef of saddam heard that saddam is planning to to cook by himself he said oh my god or maybe oh my allah in this case that's going to be a disaster. And actually, it always was a disaster. But the barbecue history you mentioned, it's also quite interesting because that's a moment when Saddam's playing his favorite game. And his favorite game was torturing or mistreating people. And that's the moment when when Saddam is preparing a, a meal for his staff and for his friends. And uh, they all start eating. And right after, they all realize that their throats are burning. And they know don't know what's going on. They, they, they all think that for some reason, Saddam is trying to kill them. And this, is, this happened to Abu Ali, the personal chef that I'm writing about. And he told me that really for a couple of minutes, he was sure that Saddam ordered him to be killed. And right after, you know, a few minutes later, he said, okay, I'm, I'm still alive. My throat is still burning, but a bit less. What's that? And then he realized that actually Saddam got a bottle of Tabasco and he didn't like spicy food. So what he did was he prepared a, a meal for everyone, but using a lot of Tabasco. They didn't know this sauce. So they didn't know what, what would happen. And Saddam had a lot of fun seeing all these people, uh, you know, uh, uh, thinking that they, for some reason, they're going to die soon. And he was sitting in the corner of a table and laughing at his staff and friends, coughing and, 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 and being scared to death. And, and then also interesting and almost like a cliche uh, that you would see in a movie about a dictator. Um, Abu Ali, the chef, the, somebody from somebody else from Saddam's staff comes and asks him, you know, what do you think about this? And, and Abu Ali recounts that whenever he would screw something up, Saddam would ask him to pay for the food. Um, and then, uh, and then, um, Saddam basically calls Abu Ali in and says, you know, well, what'd you think about the meal? And, and he forces basically Abu Ali to tell him the truth, which is that it was horrible. But Abu Ali right there is again scared for his life, right? 
So it's you know, and the whole the whole episode says a lot. Episode, not episode. The whole story says a lot about how dangerous it was to work for Saddam, because the whole story begins from you know he starts the story like it was a beautiful sunny day, right? <laughs> and we made a tour on the river. Saddam took a boat. He took his friends. So it starts like a, you know beautiful story where. What dangerous could happen when you are on a boat with friends on a sunny day? And then, you know, suddenly, uh, in a, in one hour, twice, Abu Ali thinks that he's going to be dead soon. Firstly, when he ate the, the Tabasco sauce. And the second time is when he's confronted with Saddam. And Saddam wants to know, what did you say about my dish? And Abu Ali knows that you cannot criticize Saddam Hussein. Nobody's criticizing Saddam Hussein because people who tried to do that, many of them died and some of them had to leave the country. So his ministers, his prime minister is afraid to criticize his decisions. And what about the chef? Like, how, it's impossible, you know, that his ministers and advisors are not criticizing him, but the chef can criticize him. So, and he's, he's in front of Saddam and he's like, what could I say? Like, what could I say? Like, he knows that I said that the food is shitty, yeah? Like, if I start saying, no, 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 I say it's shitty, but actually I meant that it's, it's wonderful, they would all know it's, it's, it's not true. So he said that he was waiting for an order to be executed. Mm. Yeah, but he wasn't. Like, Saddam turned it all into a joke and and they even Abu Ali even got a present after this. this yeah, day. so ha ha ha! This is all so funny, and that's. But now, even when you then many years later now uh, go to interview Abu Ali in a in, in Iraq, he is extremely paranoid again, and. I mean, justifiably, because you you know you recount that there was a bom- a suicide bomber while you were um, in in Iraq, but you know it's it's like this guy really never recovered. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, Abu Ali began hiding when the American troops were going to to Iraq, and he had he, he was hiding for many many years and he really he didn't want to be found like he 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 wasn't happy when when a, a fixer working for me finally found him through some of his sources and some of his contacts in Baghdad he wasn't happy like he wasn't waiting for someone to find him like he wanted to remain silent until he dies because working for Saddam and then hiding from the Americans because he, he really thought that if the American troops find him he would be taken to Guantanamo maybe tortured maybe executed and it's all a big trauma for him Years with Saddam, that's one trauma. And then hiding from from the coalition army, that's another trauma. And it was really hard to find this man. And it was even harder to to build kind of trustment and to build, you know, this kind of relationship that he would feel comfortable to talk and to share his story. So... It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And the, but the you know the way that you you do such a research 
special with a cook, but with everyone. I would say the best thing you could do is just take a man to his natural uh, habitat. And the most, the perfect place for a cook is the kitchen. Right. So I had that trick and I used that with all the chefs. I was taking them to a kitchen. And the best was if that was a kitchen that they knew, that the kitchen they, they usually work in or, or at least a kitchen at home. And uh, in the kitchen, all the chefs, they they feel safe. They feel uh, this is the place where you can you can open uh, open them and right. uh, and where, when they start sharing their stories and the best way to do that is you start cooking with them. I cooked with all the chefs that are in the book, and that's how they start talking. Firstly, you just talk about the ingredients. How much salt? How much pepper? How much herbs? What kind of herbs? What kind of rice did he like? Like boiled, half boiled, everything like that. And then they began, you know, the stories, they start coming to their heads and to their mouths naturally. And that was, you know, beautiful moment. And actually it happened each time that, you know, from simple cooking, we were going to this this. Uh, these life stories. Well, let's jump to um, Erasmo and Flores, who were the chefs for Fidel Castro. I mean, uh, you know, there's so many great stories in here. We could talk about Idi Amin and whether or not he actually ate human flesh, or um, the Enver uh, Ahoksa of, um, of uh, now I'm blanking on the Albania, was it? Yeah, yeah, that was Albania. And, and um, Sorry, I don't know all my dictators perfectly. But uh, there's a couple of things. Yeah. That, well, in Erasmo and Flores, isn't there a bit of a tragedy to that story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially Flores, who's lost his mind. Like uh, he was for... Because I, I believe that's okay. That's another... Uh, that that's, that's another example of a chef who's finishing his job for a dictator with the post-traumatic disorder, with, with a big trauma. And uh, Flores was not only uh, the cook of Fidel, but he was also a food taster. And uh, especially, you know, that there were so many attempts, so many plots against Fidel. Uh, only CIA tried to kill him over 200 times. And, you know, the easiest way to, to kill a dictator is to poison him. So Flores was always on the first, on, on the front line. And because he was a food taster, he would, he would die any moment. Like any time he was trying Fidel's food, he could be dead in five minutes, five minutes later. And imagine you have this kind of job for 30 or 40 years. Mm. It's, I think it's really hard to not get crazy after, after such a position, after working on such a position. And that's actually, that actually happened to Flores. Like when I met him, he was a wreck of a man. Like you mm. couldn't talk with him like we are talking, that we are, you can make a sentence which, you know, you start from A and through other letters you, you go to Z. And the sentence and the story makes sense. 
uh, you couldn't do that with him. Like he would start from his, you could ask him a question. And I was in Cuba when Barack Obama was there. Mm. And so I asked him something about Barack Obama and he began answering because he knew Obama is there. So he, he began answering, you know, with Obama. So Obama was his A, but not from Obama. He jumped to his childhood. From his childhood, he jumped to Fidel. From his Fidel, he jumped to, to you know to to his doctor, and from his doctor, he jumped to uh, back to Fidel. Did you? Cook and there with was him? no sense. There, there was no sense. Actually, I was with him in the kitchen. And from the way he was using a knife, like, you know, he was, he was a really poor guy. So one day we just bought with my, with my translator, we just bought a, a, a bag of uh, lobsters, which are quite cheap in the black market in Cuba. And we bought a few, yeah, yeah. And we bought a few fishes and we just wanted to see, we just wanted to try what kind of what could Flores make out of this? And you know, from the way he was chopping and cutting things and using a knife, you could see that he was a professional cook. That he was not a you know not a guy who's li- who was lying. He knew how to use a knife, and he used the knife profession profession professionally. But at the same time, you know, so like it's. It's really deep. He knows how to cook. He knows how to bake. He knows how to do all the stuff. But at the same time, he cannot say a, a sentence that makes sense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, in the in those cases, since the regime even the, has not actually really changed, and um, it's still basically the same government in Cuba. Yeah. Why were those two willing to speak to you? Ooh. Well, because it feels like more... in the other cases, well, the you know the the tide has you know the, has shifted. Well, so Flores, uh, his name is changed, and there is no picture of Flores in the book, because I don't really think that Flores understood right. what happened. Just there were some random people. I mean, me and my translator coming to his house. We were talking, but it's hard to say that he he really understood the situation. That we 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 want to know that I'm writing a book. I said that many times to him, but and and he, he said that he's okay with that. But I don't think he really understood that. Now, as a journalist, people there's different standards of that we you know if you're a politician in office, then pretty much anything you say we use. 
but there are other people who you do feel a responsibility to protect from themselves, old people, so, children, and things like that. That's exactly that's exactly what I did. So I hired him, and I I wrote, I gave him a different name, and I changed some details of our meeting. Uh, that he has no problems when the book is once the book is published. But you know, Erasmo, Erasmo, this, the second chef of yeah. Fidel that I talked with. He has an official restaurant in the center of Havana. And the rest of, in the restaurant, in the middle, on a wall, there is a picture of Erasmo with Fidel. And everything is legal. Like, he's the, he's the guy that cooked for Fidel for right, over it's part of his years. brand. It's part of his brand, but it's also, it's, everything is legal. And, like, he's not saying anything, none of them, neither Erasmo nor Flores, aren't saying anything that's that's that's, that's opposite to the party or opposite you know, what, in opposition to 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 Fidel. What I found, you know, what I is into well, one of the interesting things is that they recount of in the details of what Fidel ate is his obsession with um, milk and ice cream from a specific cow, one specific cow named Ubra Blanca, white udder. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, well it ahead, was a fascinating. Yeah, the, the story of the cow says a lot about Fidel. And I, I like it so much because that's exactly, you know, how I, what I like in the storytelling and, and, and telling and storytelling in food. Like you can start from one cow and the, the story of this cow tells you so much about Cuba and so much about Fidel, about his nature. This Fidel got crazy. This is, I'm, it's a quotation from Erasmo, the chef, but he told me that Fidel got crazy with this cow. It was a genetic, how you say that, genetic mixture? No. Yeah, hybrid. Genetic hybrid of two other cows. And... Uh, it had such a huge, huge uh, udder, udder, how you udder, call that yeah. against her, udder. And she was giving an enormous amount of milk. And because she was a genetic hybrid, and, and the idea to cross these two species of a cow uh, was Fidel's idea. So Fidel was really crazy. Like the cow was 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 she had a, she had a giant udder, and she was giving an enormous amount of milk. And Fidel thought that if they could have more cows like this one, Cuba will solve most of its uh, food problems. Mm. And they had mm. plenty of of you know food supplies problems. And uh, he was like, he could spend, you know, instead of ruling or running a country, he could spend a week or 10 days in the place where they where, where the cow lived. And, uh, and the cow was so precious for Fidel and for Cuba that she had her own food tasters. You know, there were other cows trying the food. She was eating mainly oranges. So, so there were other cows eating the oranges before they were served to Ubre Blanca. 
And she had the classical music, you know, all day round to make her calm and to make her happy. And uh, yeah, and Fidel, Fidel was drinking mainly the milk from this cow. And he was also, if, if there was a diary that was supposed to be served for Fidel, like cheese or, or any kind ice of cream. yogurt mm -hmm. or ice cream, that should have been from that cow. Did now? <laughs> I have to. Is the cow still alive? Oh no! That's another part. That's that's the sad part of the story. That you know, one day Ubra Blanca, you know, something went wrong, and you know, in in her in her best years, she was giving something like hundred twenty, hundred thirty liters of milk. Oh, I don't God. know how how, and that's 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 a lot. That's like a double amount of, of, of a regular cow. But at some point, something went wrong. And, uh, and she couldn't give so much milk anymore. And for, for a few weeks, the scientists were trying, you know, to, to, to make her old, good Ubre Blanca again. But it didn't work. Like instead of giving 120, 125, she was giving 60, 65. And you know, mm -hmm. and Fidel didn't need Ubra Blanca, who's not giving a record amounts of milk. He needed Ubra Blanca only when she was giving these huge amounts. You know, like what would the, the capitalist world say if they realize that Ubra Blanca is not giving the record amounts of milk? Yeah, they would say that the revolution is dead. So he didn't want that to happen. So what happened is that he ordered Ubre Blanca to be killed. And uh, and there was a, a whole page in Granma. Granma is the communist official propaganda newspaper that the cow is dead now. And, uh, and she had a full page like, you know, like Che Guevara. When he died, he also when he was killed, he also had a one page in Granma. So Ubre Blanca had a, a, a whole page in Granma, and that's the end of the story. Quite sad, isn't it? Now, has the story of Ubre Blanca been told before? I believe so. I have a book, but it, the book is uh, it was printed in Cuba. It's a book uh, that was published by the Ministry of Farming. And and there is half of the book is about Ubre Blanca. So that's more or less. That was my main source. And except that personally, I met with the veterinarian that was uh, was there when they how to say that when they mixed the genes. Right. That that was in in responsible for making. Ubre Blanca. I met the guy, and then he was in charge. He was living where she lived. But I, I, I think so. I think. How did you first there. hear about Ubre Blanca? I, I know there is a there is a documentary of Enrique Colina. He's a, a Cuban, very good Cuban director. He made a documentary called "The Cow of Steel," and I found this documentary. You know, I, I it, it, when I first heard about this, I there's a chef in New York, uh, very renowned because he 
is figuring out all kinds of new ways to make bread and produce um, all kinds of vegetables named Dan Barber. And if you go to his restaurant, which is called Stone Barns, um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, uh-huh. they they will um, serve you butter from, they call it single utter butter. And you'll get two different cows you know, cause most butter is made from just all the milk that's mixed together at the dairy. And there really is a, a difference in how each cow's butter tastes. It's kind of fascinating, but I thought that was the most interesting thing that you could, that's fat. This is fascinating about the Uber Blanca. Yeah. And you know, the, the interesting thing about Cuba is that, that Cuba was, there, there were a lot of cows in Cuba. But they were there only for stakes before revolution, I mean, before Fidel came to power. So very few people in Cuba knew about milk, about yogurt, about even about ice cream, you know. In this climate, people yeah. didn't know ice cream. And when Fidel and Fidel grew up in a farm, his father was a farmer. And Fidel grew up, you know, from his window when he was a teenager, he saw cows. So he knew about all the dairy products. And when he came to power, one of the fronts that he was, the revolution was was fighting was was the, the milk front and he really wa- he wanted people to take uh, you know, to benefit from from the fact they have cows on the island yeah and he really wanted cubans to start eating yogurt ice creams uh, and all the kinds of things you can have from milk but that was all very new for cubans you know, what, I was in Cuba in, I think in 2000, and it was, yeah, there was, I remember seeing um, black market salesmen walking yeah. around with a, um, you know, a plastic container, small one with like six sticks of real butter in them. And each one was sold as if it was a brick of gold. Yeah, but you know that uh, for you, that was probably something very unusual. But I saw that. I just came from Cuba, right, before the coronavirus uh, crisis began. And But the pictures with the black market, this is something I remember from my childhood in Poland. You know, that's when I go to Cuba, it's like, like traveling in time to my childhood. Each time I'm in, I'm, I'm in Cuba... You still with me? But all the rules are more or less the same. Especially the black market, you know, buying, buying that there in the official governmental shops there is nothing. Right, it's still like that and now. This is twenty years later. Yeah. So the the difference is exactly that uh, that in Poland it has changed and now you have really vibrant culinary scene as we were talking at the beginning. Yeah. And in Cuba, nothing has changed. And it, if it has changed, then it changed for worse. Well, I remember I did. I remember I brought. Um, I was told to bring soap, so I brought like a whole case of um, ivory soap, and giving that to people, they were they would just break down in tears. You know, this guy at the airport. I remember my wife, my child. It was life changing to have a few bars of soap. It, it's. Um, I don't mean to seem like a capitalist pig, but. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting when you are treated like a king because you have a couple soaps. Now, 
a couple more things and um, what to step back, what could you say in general about dictators? Is there, are there certain universal rules that we discover about dictators and food and the way they treat their chefs? I just refer to what you said about Cuba, okay? Because I think I have something interesting to say referring to that, you know? that, And then I go back to this question. You know, that I, I when I was in Cuba, that was a month and a half ago, and I spent a couple of days again with Erasmo, with the chef of Fidel. Right? We became kind of friends. And, uh, and even for him, you know, he cooked for Fidel Castro for over 50 years. And even for him, it's a big problem to buy, for example, the, the, the washing powder. So because I had a rented car, one day we just went for shopping together and I spent half of a day with the personal chef of Fidel Castro hunting for a, for a washing powder. Mm. That's how Cuba looks like today. And, uh, and now going back... Sorry, can you repeat the question? Well, it, it's just int- I didn't real. I know that when I was there in Cuba, like I said, about twenty years ago, yeah, there was a yeah. lot of Spanish hotels that were you know building resorts and especially at Veradero Beach, and it seemed having it okay. Still with me? Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Sorry, I had a little weird glitch in my recording. Um, uh, the question I asked you is: Are there? It, Stepping back, are there any kind of general things that seem to be similarities between all of these dictators and autocrats and their food? Well, they all use food as a, as a tool of propaganda. And, uh, and when, you, when you talk with the chefs, then you realize how much of that they use. Like I told you the story about Fidel cooking for his soldiers, but there would be a story, for example, of, of, uh, I said Fidel about Saddam Hussein cooking for his soldiers and burning the food. But still it's, it's a great picture for his propaganda, uh, that Fidel as a father of the nation. And for example, from the chef of Saddam from uh, Fidel Castro, I heard many times, that Fidel didn't, did never ask for any luxuries, and that the food mm. he liked was exactly the food that the average Cuban people were eating. And I had a bad, very bad argument with him about that because I know from the books, and you know, I have some friends in Cuba, and they told me that, especially after the collapse of Soviet Union, people were starving in Cuba. And they were using, for example, uh, the pieces, how do you call a skin of an orange? The peel. The, the, the peel, sorry. So they were using a peel of an orange or grapefruit to make a steak because they didn't have a meat. And there were days when they were just... Uh, drinking uh, water with sugar from from the sugar plantains because there was no food and they were or, and you know all the cats in Cuba almost all the cats were eaten mm. after Soviet Union collapsed so it was really they had few years of a real hunger 
And I asked him, Erasmo, are you trying to tell me that Fidel was eating a steak, you know, from the orange peels? Like, wait, what do you mean he was eating like the average Cuban people? Like, he was eating all the time, you know, he was eating good fish. He was eating a lot of fresh vegetables. He was eating uh, langusta, you say in English? Shrimp. The, not shrimp, or but small the, lobster. The yeah. The lobster. He, he was eating lobster. Yeah, yeah he was, he, he loved lobster. And, you know, the, the private boats were not allowed for to go, and especially for lobster. Lobster is like, uh, like a diamond in Cuba. You, you can buy it very cheap, but for a few years it was not allowed. Yeah. And I said, I told him, like, Fidel had all the best food. What do you mean, like, average Cuban? But then I understood that it's actually part of propaganda, that what he's telling me, it's not supposed to be the truth. But it's also the chef of a dictator is, is a part of the propaganda engine or propaganda machine. If you could interview people who feed Donald Trump, what would you <clears throat> want to know? I, I want to, I would like to understand why, why eating Mc, food from McDonald's <laughs> with a silver, you know, with a silver fork and knife. What's, what's the point in that, you know? Oh, like I think you either, just answered either, it. You mean, what did he say? I think you just answered it. I think Trump, uh, I think Trump, first of all, that's food of the people. And he, he, it was interesting about him and, you know, I interviewed Steve Bannon, you know, one of his main advisors and, um, you know, Bannon says, I'm a populist, I'm a populist. And Trump says, no, I'm a popularist. I study what is popular. And right. he would always tell Bannon that he had it wrong, that the, the, the common people wanted to be elite. They, didn't, they weren't happy being, you know, they wanted to think of themselves as what would they do if they were elite. And Trump is supposed to embody, well, if you're a common person who becomes rich – you know, what would you do? And, you know, what would you do? You would, the fantasy is you'd sleep with models and you'd, you know, you'd eat whatever you wanted, including going to McDonald's and, you know, not worrying about it. Or So Trump both eats at fancy restaurants, you know, he owns uh, properties with fancy restaurants and obviously, um, you know, he has the famous chocolate cake and stuff at Mar-a-Lago, but I think it is a way of, you know, it's his log cabin, if you will. Every American president needs to prove that they are of, in some way of the people. And I think that's what McDonald's is about, just like right, that, Fidel. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That's, again, propaganda. Yeah? Food as a tool in the propaganda machine. And there is an amazing example of that. Um, so, I mean, if, if I go back to your question about Donald Trump, I wouldn't have more questions like i would like to know what he really eats yeah and what he eats in the moment in the moments when he's not uh, making propaganda yeah uh what he what are his really favorite dishes and uh and uh, what what food he really eats 
when there is no cameras and when there is no photographers around. Because that would say, you know, that would be the, the real Donald Trump, yeah? The food, I I think that the power of this book and the power of the, the conversations with, with the chefs is that there is only two people that you cannot hide the truth from. Mm. And it's not your wife, it's not your partner, it's not your husband. And for the dictators, it's not the people that they serve for, they serve, they work for, but this is your doctor because he has the test, so he knows the truth about uh-huh. you. And this is the chef because he, sooner or later, you, you will ask for the food that you really like. You will ask for the food that is not your propaganda tool, but you will ask for the food that you that really makes you happy and that you really enjoy. And I would like to know what's what's the food for Donald Trump. Mm. You know, I, I, by the way, by the way, my fixer when I was working in Havana, I went there when uh, when President Obama was there because. I I used Mr. Obama as a magnet. Like I knew that if I go there any other moment, there might be some, you know, super secret service guys uh, watching what I do. But then I knew that they all focus on Obama and his people. So I was more or less free to work in Cuba. And I had an amazing story because I had a fixer who was a waiter himself and he knew the culinary world and all the chefs, etc. But one day, like he took a few days off to work with me. But one day the chef, uh, the the chef, the the owner of the restaurant called him and said, like, like, um, I know you have another job for these few days, but please, today you really have to come. So he went to the restaurant and he had the honor and the pleasure to be a waiter at the Obama's dinner in the San Cristobal restaurant. So that was amazing. Well, interesting about Obama, you didn't you end up crossing paths with some of his relatives in Kenya? Yeah, yeah. I know we don't have a I ton visit, of time left, but I can you visit, just touch on that? I visit the- Yes, yes. It was a great, great adventure because uh, Mr. Obama's grandfather uh, had a wife whose name is Mama Sarah Obama, and she's still alive. It wasn't his first wife, so she's not a, a, she doesn't share a blood with Mr. Obama. But anyway, he's calling her grandma, and and I know he's calling her from time to time mm. and she's a great amazing personality like she's she's done a lot of charity in her life like she's helping to the local local children to to uh, to get better education especially for the, for the girls to have equal rights and equal education chances and when i met her you know that's that's <laughs> that was so funny because she was 49 so, sorry she was 94 when we met and obviously, I was asking about the Obamas, yeah, about her husband and, and, and their family. And she's such a great joker because at some point she spotted at me after my next question. She spotted at me and said, son, you're asking so many questions about my late husband. And then she made a pause and she said, 
are you planning to propose? <laughs> <laughs> and that was so great. That was she. She had such a great sense of humor, and it was such an amazing meeting. What was her connection to Idi Amin? Well, uh, the the chef that cooked for Idi Amin and uh, the grandfather of Mr. Obama are from the same Kenyan tribe. Hmm. Well, just I I look forward to uh, everybody reading this book and to much success for you. We told. Um, and uh, the book is called How to Feed a Dictator, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Enver Hoxha, Fidel Castro, and Pol Pot Through the Eyes of Their Cooks. I feel like we just started unpacking <laughs> Thank what, you. the things Thank we could you. possibly talk about. But I guess you put it all in a book, and it's our job to read the whole thing. Um, what do you want to next? I actually, uh, I'm lucky enough that I finished research for my next book and now I'm writing it. And this will be the story of USSR uh, from the kitchen perspective again. So I'm talking with chefs that cooked in Chernobyl. I'm talking with chefs that cooked for the first secretaries. But also, for example, there, there will be a recipe for the first soup that was in the space. So the first borscht, the Russian soup yeah. that uh, that was taken with Yuri Gagarin to the space, I will have a recipe for this. In the Are there people book. around who serve Stalin still? Oh no, no, no! They are all gone. But the guy, the the, the chef who's in the book, who served Brezhnev and then uh, Gorbachev and then Yeltsin. So he spent many years, he was many years the main uh, chef in the Kremlin kitchen. He was, uh, the, the, he learned the profession from the personal chef of Stalin. So there will be a little bit of, of his recipes and of his presence in the book. It's a, this is a great um, p angle on food writing that you found, uh, politics and food in a whole nother way. And uh, I'm, I look forward to your new book and everything else. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and um, much Thanks. success with the book. Thank you, Alan. It's been a great pleasure and hope we are in touch, at least when the next book is published. Send me your email um, or have your person do it so I can figure out how to get you are a copy you on, of my book. Are you, are you on Facebook, by the way? Yeah, Alan Salkin, A-L-L-E-N-S-A-L-K-I-N. -L -L I think it's actually Facebook. Facebook.com yeah. slash Salkin. I was... All the right. first day they made the names available, I like got on at two in the morning and got Salkin. Alan was gone, <laughs> but I got Salkin. All right, all right. So I be, it would be great to be in touch. Like, Absolutely, I really enjoyed the, the the conversation we had. We'll be happy to be in touch with you. Wonderful. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. bye. Ciao. It's been a pleasure doing this interview for New Books and Food. This is Alan Salkin. Uh, there's a lot of other great hosts on this channel and all over the New Books Network, um, which is run by the great Marshall Poe. Um, so check out everything. Check out all the other things on here. My previous... Most recent interview was with um, the editors of the Zagat Guide, but I go way back on this channel. I started it as the first host and uh, thrilled that you guys are still listening. So be well. Thank you and eat well. <laughs> <laughs>